This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Depravity, a narrative of 16 serial killers. And the author is Harvey Rosenfeld. And Harvey joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Harvey. Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm going to read what you have written in the introduction, just a short paragraph to kind of give an overview of what your book uh, focuses on. Obviously, I think it's uh, from the title. We know it's about serial killers, but this is what you say. Serial killers have become an important factor in America's unsolved murders. They may very well account for many of America's 5,000 unsolved killings each year. In addition, Serial killers may be responsible for a large number of unknown murders each year, since many of their victims are drifters and prostitutes. So many have nobody to report them as missing. Why did you write this book, Harvey? Well, I've been fascinated with um, uh, mass murder uh, on on several levels. One is that um, uh, my uh, mentor at St. John's University uh, in Elizabethan drama was Cecilia Broadwin, and the um, specialty especially was uh, Elizabethan love tragedy, which dealt with all kinds of really uh, eerie um, murders. And for more than 30 years, I was the founding editor of a publication on the Holocaust called Martyr Resistance, which dealt on, on, on uh, great uh, detail with, with murders across the world. Uh, so uh, I became fascinated with that topic, and as a PhD in the in uh, English, murder is certainly a very current and uh, ever prevalent topic in in literature. So, is there some kind of characteristic that runs through all of these serial killers? Something that just kind of jumps out at you? Well, the the thing that stands out is that nothing stands out because it's very complicated. Uh, there, there's a combination of factors that um, uh, a deprived childhood. Um, in some people, it was an exposure to to uh, killings. Uh, several of the killers were in were in the military. Um, in certain certain cases, it was uh, um, certain mental mental deficiencies, not crazy necessarily, but um, maybe certain psychiatric problems. In a number of cases, it was pure, and it's, they, they are mass murderers, people who are simply plunderers, uh, and, and my definition, they are serial killers, or Louisville killers, people who um, married women and killed them, um, people who just simply enjoyed uh, killing and making money, and then you had people who had homosexual tendencies, so it really is, is a combination of so many different factors that you could not really, very hard to identify someone who had the possible career for a serial killer. There's no, there is no scientific authenticity of determining who's going to be a serial killer. 
But the amount of serial killings has really increased over these many decades. Well, one reason I think it's increased is perhaps the detection techniques might have become better, and the, the world that we live in has become uh, technologically advanced, which means that the Internet lends itself to perhaps serial killing. Uh, that's true of some of the Lonely Hearts killers, uh, which we don't call that now. So I think that's a factor um, that has become more more um, advanced. And one of, one of the contemporary groups of serial killers deal with people who have power of life and death, and that would apply, I think, to the most current category, which is the, the people who are involved with health care. And since the longevity rates have increased, you're going to have more people who are exposed to being killed, as you saw with Arthur Nesset. You have chosen 16 serial killers. How did you narrow this down to 16 of them? Well, 16, 16 um, fit the categories, but to be honest with you, it was sort of a literary, what should you say, uh, uh, whim. Originally, the book was going to be called Not-So-Sweet 16, which no one seemed to like, and I guess in a sense I was wedded to the pardon the pun, to the idea of 16, so it came out 16. Not-So-Sweet 16 seemed like a very catchy title, but frankly did not, did not maybe <laughs> justify depravity seems more to the point, so that's how I got 16. But 16 seemed to work out well because I've covered all the categories that I wanted to cover, and covering the globe, which was a facet. So I think if I had 17, I might have been stretching it. 16 just worked out very neatly. Well, tell us about these different categories. You've got, what, six of them? Yes, there are, um, let me see, six, six categories. Okay. Uh, the first one is profiteers and plunderers. And those, you might say, are people who may have characteristics of um, some of the circuits I mentioned before. But money was the, there's always an overlap. Money was really very much uh, behind that. And I think one of the fascinating ones was Vasily Komarov, the vampire of Moscow, who was a member, a high member of the Communist Party basically said he needed money to for sweets and for other things and he would go to the horse horse trading and then say he had a um, a pedigree uh, horse to show somebody and they sneak up behind him hit the guy over the head with a hatchet and put a, and basically put him away in a bag and then dump him in the river okay and it was several like that and then you had the lonely hearts killers who were interested in, in money and of course the bluebeard killer which was um, uh, Joanne Hoke they are villains of society, which these are two individuals that I have here who perhaps were victimized by the times that they lived in, one in Germany and one in America. Society, in a sense, not to blame, but they, one of them, Panzerim, said, society made me who I was. Then I have the Vengeful Killer, who was motivated by revenge purely, which was Belakis, the Hungarian fellow, and Hansen, who was rejected by women when he was young, and Lucian Staniak, whose um, parents uh, were killed by someone who uh, was blonde, and he was just out to kill people who reminded him uh, of that individual. Then you had a, a March category of sadosexual crimes from the, um, the combination of Toole and Lucas and Lake and Ng and um, Chikatilo, who was the... Uh, uh, Ukrainian, and in call, a homosexual killer. And of that group, I'd just like to single out 
uh, tool, the reason I find him fascinating, and he was not in the book for that reason. You might have heard the, of the America's Most Wanted, Walsh. Yes. Yes, his son was a, a victim of Tool, and the question is, he claimed that he did, and he's not no longer here, Tool. Some people believe that he's not. The case is open, closed, open, closed. So that's a really a fascinating um, um, story, but that's still go, it's contemporary. I also found uh, the um, in another category, uh, if you can move on to Section 5, which is Carlton Gary, uh, and that is sort of what you call this, the stereotypes uh, for reasons that maybe can't be explained or can be explained. The number of serial killers per population of African Americans is not large compared to other killers in society. And it's been a stereotype that they're not smart enough to be serial killers because you have to be smart, otherwise you'd be ca- caught the first round. And Carlton Gary... The according to the latest some of the latest literature might be innocent and the DNA might prove that so and so that he, it's true and that's a very debatable uh, question uh, that and and this Colin guy was intelligent as it so turned out but he had other issues and of course the last category was of one is often Nesset uh, which is fascinating to me because uh, I also did a book on Raoul Wallenberg who saved 100,000 Jews during the Holocaust. And that also whetted my appetite for the question of murder. And this was a trial in Norway that rivaled Quisling. And here you had an individual who had control as a manager of a nursing home in suburban Oslo who basically injected um, elderly patients, primarily women, with curacet, which is used to tip the poison arrows in Central America, and he said he was doing it for a dog, and somehow, how did he escape so many, so many uh, killings? But he had to question uh, the power of life and death, which is very much true today, and doctors and nurses, and that's becoming a growing field. We had uh, Dr. Shipman, you might remember that name, so this is a, uh, maybe the contemporary... Um, issue or one of the contemporary senses of mass murder today. Well, let's go back to uh, Henry Lucas and Otis Toole. You call right. them the tag team from hell. Right. <laughs> My goodness, that's, I, <laughs> that's, I, I like guess a, that's pretty graphic like, right there. You don't uh, even like, need to yeah, read anymore. Like kangaroos, <laughs> Red Berry and the kangaroos uh, wrestling years ago. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, tell us in some more detail about Lucas and Toole. Well, Lucas and Toole, they, they, these individuals came from backgrounds that sort of lend itself to, um, uh, I say, depri- depravity from, de- from deprived backhoods. The, the parenting was not very good in their cases. And they, they um, sodomized some of their victims. And uh, they went over the, the, their numbers. The numbers were, were um, uh, quite large. And the fact that they were able to get together was a fascinating thing. Because usually, you don't have that many teams of serial killers. In fact, if you look at the introduction uh, to the chapter, okay, um, it says the serial the serial killers um, dual serial killers are not uh, are uh, uncommon but not rare. However, Henry Lucas and Tool, okay, uh, was uh, it, it was a um, an association, okay, 
which was very well advanced. There was Lucas, was very well advanced in his serial killing career, and all of a sudden, um, a tool tool came into the play, and it multiplied. Okay, and apart from the fact, the they were the consummate. Okay, the consummate, the um, killer couple, and I called them the sadist king and generalissimo, the generalissimo of pain. Sort of their one foot out through the other one. And their, 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 doings, their doings are really so fascinating in terms of their, their activities and the states that they covered, uh, which we tell you. And in, in terms, some, some people call uh, Lucas America's most prolific serial killer. Uh, and some may call him the most controversial murderer. Okay, whose confessions, some of his confessions were false. Uh, and also he has a distinction, what called a distinction. His sentence was, was commuted by President George Bush when he was the governor. And this was the only time, the first and only time, that the governor, that the governor commuted any sentence, Governor Bush. Okay. And he was also one of the first, we call him a wandering serial killer, which means he basically, he didn't stay in one place. He moved from place to place. And he was described, they killed by sort of grown-out wanderings. In other words, they, 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 um, uh, they, they go from state to state. And Lucas was convicted of murders in 26 states. That's quite a sort of like a, <laughs> a journeyman. Usually Syracuse have a certain locality, Moscow or, uh, or Warsaw. But some of this guy went all over the place. How many murders were, uh, was he accused well, he was accused uh, of more than more than um, I have down here that he that he that he killed oh maybe I don't know fifty sixty some they missed some he didn't so it's debatable how many actually he killed but he may be the, the, the at the highest perhaps uh, I think the fellow uh, in Moscow was interesting because he had the distinction there was a distinction of being the the, the number one serial killer among Russian, I say Russian in a loose sense because the, the map of Russia has been withdrawn, but somebody, somebody, uh, I did him, he's called a chessboard killer, who's more contemporary, and he's in my book as, as an addendum. Uh, he almost like would have people lined up like on a chessboard or something, but some of, some of the killings were sort of, I guess, rescinded, so I think that Chikatilo still has that distinction or dubious distinction. I was curious, was there ever a reason given by Governor George Bush why he commuted the uh, death sentence? Uh, it's a good question because in his case, perhaps uh, maybe some, some of the killings were maybe were debatable, whether he actually, uh, in terms of the confessions. I'm not sure actually was discussed because you're right. Why did, first of all, how, how long was, was Bush... Governor, that that it would have been that many, that many would have you know um, would have been in play, but there was some there was some debate about some some. You know, say well, I mean, certainly ten, twelve, fifteen were okay. Perhaps also in terms of his mental state. Good question. I, I've never seen I've never seen any reason. I don't believe I gave any reason in the book for it either. Well, Harvey, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, the book is available. Uh, obviously, through our universe. And this is where you could be more direct. I believe it's also available on Amazon. Um, I guess there are some other outlets uh, that are available. I know the book has been reviewed 
uh, online. I don't know. That's that's a that's a uh, market. And I must tell you that I received a review. It's called News and Views, uh, Reader's News and Views, and it was reviewed by a former police chief, I think, from Washington State. I contacted him. He said he wished he had known me when he was the police chief in say what what uh, city, um, because he met many serial killers in terms of conferences, not to meet them personally. And he attended training seminars, and he could have learned a lot from me, which I guess is very flattering, because I don't consider myself an authority. You know, if you take a look at the bibliography, there are many books on serial killers. None, I, I should say, this, this book is unique, because most serial killer books are either encyclopedias, every serial killer possible in every term, or uh, it might be just one or two or one. This is the only serial killer book which breaks it into categories and has a, a select number across the globe that makes it unique. But again, our universe is a place, and I think it's Amazon. I assume it's Barnes & Noble, too. I can't think of any else. I guess it's certain bookstores uh, and online. Well, thank you, Harvey. We appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Okay, appreciate it, too. That was Harvey Rosenfeld. He is the author of his book, Depravity, A Narrative of 16 Serial Killers. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Simon's Crossing. It's co-authored by Dennis Slattery and Charles Asher. And Dennis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dennis. Hi. Good morning, Steve. I'm glad uh, glad to hear from you, and this is, this is exciting. 
to begin to get the word out as much as we can on this uh, on this work of fiction. Well, we want to emphasize this is a work of fiction, but it's also centered on some historical characters from the Bible. Everyone will recognize. Uh, I'm going to read what you have written about the book in a summary statement. You say, Simon's Crossing tells the story of Simon of Cyrene, who, when visiting Jerusalem for Passover, is suddenly pulled from the crowd in the streets and demanded to carry the cross of Jesus Christ up to Mount Golgotha. Full of hatred and revenge over the death of his wife at the hands of Roman soldiers, Simon suffers with Christ as he carries his cross and is transformed by the experience, relinquishing his hatred and passion for revenge. So certainly, credible emotions involved here of all different kinds from one end of the spectrum to the other. This must have been a, a, a very exciting story to write, very demanding story to write. I'm sure you felt a great responsibility. Let's just start here, though. Dennis, why did you write the book? Well, it's a, it's a fair question, and it's actually a good uh, originating question uh, to begin with, Steve. The, the experience that I had was in a uh, three-and-a-half-month uh, sabbatical. I visited monasteries and retreat centers uh, in eight states in the United States. And in one of them, uh, and I'm Roman Catholic, in one of the retreat centers just north of Tucson, Arizona, a Carmelite monastery, I was making the Stations of the Cross out in the desert, uh, which is where the Carmelites had placed uh, the 14 Stations of the Cross. And I think Simon's... uh, the, the the station that brings in Simon as the one who was pulled out of the crowd by a Roman centurion and told that he will carry this prisoner's cross to the top of Golgotha because the fear was that Christ would die of exhaustion if he was forced to carry his own. So I'm sitting in front of this cross out in the desert about 8 a.m., and a voice comes to me and says, tell my story. Now, I am not prone to hallucinations or hearing voices. So this startled me. And I tucked it in the back of my mind and went through my day. And in a couple of weeks after that, uh, I headed home to Santa Barbara, California, where we lived at the time, and forgot about it. And then about two months later, that incident, uh, I recollected out of the blue, and I thought, I wonder if there's something serious about that voice and about Simon. And I, uh, while I have written three volumes of poetry and I'm finishing up a fourth, I have never written short stories or novels, and I thought, maybe this is the time to tell Simon of Cyrena's story, and I invited my friend Charles Tasher, who at the time was provost at uh, Pacific, a graduate institute where I teach uh, two weeks a month, uh, who is a Episcopal priest and a Jungian uh, analyst, and I made an appointment and went in to see him, and I said, Charles, would it be of any interest to you to pair up with me to tell this story? 
of Simon, and I related to him the incident that I just related to you and, and uh, the listeners, and he became very excited and animated, and he said, count me in. And I said, great, how do we do this? And Steve, over a seven-and-a-half-year period, talking once or twice a week, pretty much on a regular basis, and there were different things that happened in Charles's life, my life, that slowed us down, and we had to shelve the project. Still, Simon's voice would not go away. And so we stayed with the story, and here we are uh, in 2010 with the book just out. So that was the originating moment that um, brought us together to, to write this story as a fiction, and yet we both feel that underneath the fiction is the mythology of Simon that is captured on some level, and, and the readers can make that decision for themselves uh, uh, when they read the story, uh, but we feel that in the fiction there is a truth about Simon's experience. And, you know, some believe that <laughs> works of fiction can capture something historical even more profoundly than history itself can. And that was one of our bases, bases for, for writing it, that even while it's a fictionalized thing of history, might it also be possible that in the fiction is a truth about history that history itself has not given voice to? So that's a long answer to your question, but that really sets the ground for how this book came to being. Well, that's such an emotional image, I think, in everybody's mind who knows that story. We've seen it portrayed in, on TV, in the movies. Uh, so yeah. we have this image, and it's a very, obviously, extremely uh, emotional image because of the suffering of Christ. They're dragging, or he's dragging himself up to Calgary to be crucified, and yet here, out of the crowd, the Roman soldier yanks this innocent person at the moment, and yet, um, so so you take Simon, he's yanked out of the crowd, now you send him on a journey of his life because of his involvement with Christ in a very short period of time. It changes his whole life. Yes, and the, the exactly right, and the powerful metaphor that we wanted to give voice to, and in fact, one could make an argument that the main character in the story is the cross itself. And, you know, this um, human condition, I think that each and every person finds uh, him or herself in. Uh, one time or many times, I think it's many times, is when when the world steps up and asks the individual, are you willing to give something of yourself up and take on the burden of another and carry that burden in an act of selflessness? Uh, you know, the mythologist Joseph Campbell claims all of us are given a calling. Some heed it. Others refuse it, and I think people die 
every single day having lived an unlived life. So this little vignette that appears in the Gospels where Simon is asked, are you ready to heed this call to serve another, or are you going to stand there and be a, remain a member of the crowd and refuse this call, is, a, is what Carl Jung would call an archetypal situation. In other words, nobody gets out of this life without having been invited or coerced or commanded to step forward and become more the individual that they are because of this burden. And so that's the situation that I think is absolutely universal and that Christ becomes the occasion for that invitation to step forward and serve another. And for me, and I think for Charles, I don't want to speak for him, it's at the very heart of the Christian mystery, this serving of another by taking on the burden of another. And I think that's the piece that readers will be able to relate to most emphatically and perhaps most intimately when they read the story. Well, that is the essence of the teachings of Jesus Christ. That he was the model, he was the perfect example of it, and he asked us to follow him. So this story, really, even though it's a, just this really small moment in time for Simon of Cyrene, it changes his whole life, it affects his whole life, just like reading the story and visualizing it as we're reading it. It's going to change ours. Yes. Well, that's our hope. And I think you're absolutely right. There are, there are things that happen to each of us that transform us slowly over time, maybe over decades. And then there are those other situations that happen to us in an instant that change us radically from one second to the, to the next. Now, Simon's story is right in between there, because uh, even though the, the Via Dolorosa, the, the journey up, the journey of sorrows up uh, through Jerusalem and up to Golgotha uh, lasts for part of a day. It's long enough, the story suggests, to change one's heart from a brittle, hard, resentful, and woundedness to one in which compassion and selflessness really do take over. And you're right. I think that is the heart of the Christian story, that miracle of a soul being transformed in the serving of another. I think it points out a paradox. Some believe, first I have to be, first I have to change, then I'll serve. And the paradox of Simon's story is, no, no, you got it backwards. You step forward in resentment and willingly and in that, the resentment is dissolved and disintegrated. And sometimes, as the, as the story uh, unfolds in the gospel, uh, one has to be coerced. But, I, but Charles and I believe that Simon still had the choice to say, no, I will not serve. He chose, in, for reasons that only the mystery of the human heart could uh, recognize and express. 
he chose to step forward, even in his resentment and his woundedness, and he didn't recognize that in that moment, his healing began right there. But it took him some time for that recognition to come. So part of the part of the paradox of the Christian mystery is what we hoped we captured at least on some fundamental level, Steve. Of course, we have, besides Jesus Christ and Simon, you also have Pontius Pilate, Rufus and Alexander, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Veronica, uh, you have Priscilla, the wife of Simon and the mother of Rufus and Alexander, and then there's Roman soldier, how do you pronounce his name? Abinadar. Abinadar. Tell us about yeah. Abinadar. We just have a, by the way, we have about, uh, oh, about three minutes left. Oh, gosh, the time is just flying. I'm sorry. It is. But, no, it's been really good. So tell us a little bit about this Roman soldier. It kind of sounds like it's just on the other extreme from Simon. Here's this Roman soldier, Abinadar. Yes. No, it's a perfect, what you just said there at the end. Here is one who is a functionary who uses the system that he's in to brutalize, rape, and violate others. He is, the, he is the flip side of Simon, and in some ways he's his inverse brother. This is the one who, instead of heeding the call to service, is one who is using a system, a political system, to further his own appetites. Now, every, every uh, winter quarter I teach Dante's Divine Comedy in the program that I'm associated with at at Pacifica, and and Abinadar is one of those characters in Dante's Inferno who spends his life satisfying his own appetites and doesn't recognize that this pleasure-seeking way of life is, is tantamount to living in hell itself. So he is the flip side. The other characters that you mentioned implicate the political public realm and the more private filial realm and our book our novel wants to witness that they cannot be separated that the political is the familial and what takes place in the familial is political then you can't draw a neat line down the middle and so Pilate for example, washing his hands of Jesus, thinking that's going to cleanse him from this political figure is, is absolute nonsense. And maybe Pilate's story is another, <laughs> is another like novel. Yes, definitely. Him to be, his story to be told. Exactly. Well, there's obviously when we talk about Jesus Christ and all the people that he affected in the scriptures or I have many references references to individuals who just had a brief contact with him, but that brief yes. contact changed their lives dramatically, Absolutely. or Absolutely. or hard, or maybe hardened them more. You know that may have been part of it as well. And they all didn't just soften up and follow Christ. No, and in fact, some said we need to assassinate him. He's just bad for business. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, just a fascinating yeah, right. novel, fascinating approach to this, Dennis. We really salute you for tackling this. And after seven and a half years, I'm sure you're grateful that you finally published it. 
we feel like we've lifted the cross off our own shoulders for <laughs> yes. a short time. <laughs> well, how do we get your book, Dennis? Uh, you can go online to Amazon.com and get it, and you can. Uh, it's available from iUniverse at www.iUniverse.com. And uh, we hope readers will buy it and discuss it, and if they care to, to contact either Charles or me, because we're very interested in seeing how the book is witnessed by readers, Steve. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Dennis. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. That was Dennis Slattery. He is the co-author, along with Charles Asher, of their book, Simon's Crossing. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Miracle of Me, a memoir. And the author is Alice Snow. And Alice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alice. Hello. Well, good to have you with us. This is quite an emotional story, a personal story, uh, your memoirs. And I'm going to read a little from your introduction to kind of set the tone, the theme of your book. You wrote this. I had come to the doctor for a routine test to check out something simple, a little hand numbness and sting of the wrist here and there. Today, an MRI revealed some type of mass growing in my brain. How life could change so drastically in a 24-hour period that time itself could go from being my greatest ally to my worst enemy. And I felt, I felt a swift kick in the pit of my gut that seemed to suck the oxygen right out of my lungs. Whoa, that's a, a lot of feelings there. 
yeah. uh, written very well, uh, too. So congratulations on your, you're, you're a very uh, uh, pointed, emotional writer. It kind of goes right to into the heart. So I congratulate yeah. you on that. Why write this book? Why publish this book? That's a big effort. I wrote this book because I think I have a lesson to pass on to people. My whole life, I've been very giving to other humanity, but I've been very quiet about it. You know, you do it, and it's done, and you go on to something else. But I believe in writing this book, it will inspire others to do the same. I believe I've been presented a gift to be alive, and I am alive, and I will continue to do service in my community. There is no question in my mind. I will continue to do service in my community. When did you first discover this tumor? I was 20, I, it was 15 years ago I discovered the tumor, 15 years ago today. And at that time, they gave me anywhere from three months to three years to live because it was very, very malignant. Well, certainly you have beaten all the odds, that's for sure, and we're grateful that you've been able to do that. Now, you you start out right at a young age. You're helping us see what's going on in your family. Uh, back, what, 19 what? 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 Where do you take us back to? Uh, 1964. 1964. Yes, I was 16 years old. And my father was a remarkable man. He was in World War II. We didn't speak about it, but he was a remarkable man. And he became a bill poster. Do you remember the signs hanging up on the uh, driveways and the streets? That uh, My father did that. He posted signs. <laughs> but we had an incident in the family where my uncle died, and he had a business of undertaker and so my father took over that business and that became a part of our family history now you had an interesting relationship with your father that others didn't have in the family tell us about that i was more serious the other were you know the others were just kind of normal kids i was always very very serious and so i think the relationship i had with my father was more uh I was a teenager, yes, but I was more uh, adult-like in my thinking, I believe, and that brought us closer together. And you kind of could read his mind, so to speak, just with the way he looked in his eyes. Yes, I could. He was a very, very, very kind man. So you must my have had a very... Also. You must have had a very special relationship with him. That's, that's always great when a father-daughter has that kind of relationship. Yes, and my mother, too, was a remarkable woman. She was a funny lady. My mother was a funny lady. We never had a down day at her, her house. She was fun and funny. So the book starts out back when you're 16 and goes over a span of how many years? Well, until present, um, the book spans my life, my lifetime after the age 16. Um, the uh, last episode in the book is just recent. Now, also, you traveled a bit through your life, and you, took, you take us on different travels to the different countries that you 
visited and and uh, why were you in these other countries? I had the desire to see the rest of the world, quote unquote. But I started out in going to Europe, and I was uh, 19 years old. You know, I went to school full-time to the University of Minnesota, but I also worked full-time, so I lived at home. So I was in school full-time, and I worked full-time, and I saved money, you know. And I went to Europe by myself, which at that time was unusual. You know, there's a lot more tourists now in Europe, but that was back in 1967 when I went. And it was a wonderful experience. And also you went to South America. Yes. Now that's a whole nother story. I came back from Europe, went to school full-time, worked full-time. But I had a brother that was in Vietnam, and I felt, okay, this is not fair. He's in Vietnam. I need to do something. I need to do something productive. And so I very quietly uh, uh, signed up for a program that I could be part of the church in Bolivia. So I was a part-time missionary in Bolivia for a year. Well, these experiences of travel, of course, when we travel and we spend some time in a particular place, uh, we meet a lot of people and we learn a lot of things. Now, what were you learning at this time through your travels? Well, Bolivia at that time was the third poorest country in the world. And so when I got off the plane and took the taxi down to where I would be living, I had all that I could do but cry because of the poverty. I'd never seen anything like that before. I had never seen anything like that before. And so it all started from there. I got very involved with communities in Bolivia. And when you say you'd never seen anything like that before, what were you seeing? I was seeing poverty at its worst. You know, children that didn't have clothing, you know, no food for these people. They would eat bananas, but they didn't have food. They were very, very poor. And I was really uh, appalled at what I saw. It was uh, very, very heartbreaking for me. And so I became very involved with the Native people. I I went originally to be a secretary to the bishop, and I did that the whole time I was there. But I wanted more. I wanted to be with the Native people. Now, I'm only 20 years old, and at age 20, nothing bothers you, you know. Nothing bothers you. I didn't mind my style of living. It didn't bother me at all. I was 20 years old. What are some of the people that had a very dramatic impact on you, people that were your mentors, teachers, you know, family possible? Well, my mother, she was a saint, so I'm going to give my mother a lot of credit. She never put her foot down when I wanted to do anything. She encouraged me to follow my dreams. My mother was an an incredible woman, and uh, she died fairly recently at age 90, so she was an incredible woman. I would say she, when I was young, when I was young, was my mentor. My mother was my mentor, and she was fun. Everybody loved my mother. 
You know, she was there for anybody that needed help. She was there. And so I saw her as being my mentor. Well, give us another person, uh, a teacher, a work associate, or someone who had a great impact on you. I would say the man that wrote my recommendation to go to Bolivia. I was only 20 years old, but I knew the man that was in charge of, uh, I was not uh, in the 4-H, but he was in charge of the 4-H in Minnesota, and he was a member of our church, and he wrote an elaborate, positive note on who I was and what I was doing in our community at age 20. And so it was because of him that I was able to go to Bolivia at age 20. I was the youngest, you know. (laughs) So did you feel driven to live up to these kinds of expectations? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. In fact, I was more driven than I expected. Well, that's an important part of our lives if people show us our potential and many people though don't grab a hold of it you know they unfortunately let it slip through their hands but other people and it's probably a small percentage people like you who really grab a hold of it and really accomplish a lot in life what would you say are some of the uh, great accomplishments that you feel were you know obviously noteworthy for your book oh i did quite a bit in terms of of uh, accomplishments in working with the underprivileged, not only in South America, but also in America. I just wanted to mention that when I came home from South America to be back with my family again, I'll never forget our first dinner. You know, Americans eat, you know, and sometimes they don't eat at all. And I'll never forget literally, quote-unquote, yelling at my younger brother who did not finish his chicken. <laughs> and everyone was kind of taken back. Right. You this were... was my first evening home. And then all of a sudden I realized, Alice, you're in Minnesota now. You know, you have to get used to the culture again. And also it was difficult for me when I first got back, you know, to relate to my friends, you know, I didn't, they were just used to American life, and I was, uh, I had seen so much difference, so that was difficult. Now, what was your question? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was just, you know, uh, asking about this, these expectations that you saw in yourself with others, the way they were talking about you, writing about you at a young age, uh, what kind of an effect did that have on you? What what were you what were you able to accomplish because of it? Well, I always became a coordinator of mission service wherever I lived. You know, in uh, Denver, I was a coordinator and I helped develop. Now, this goes back before my brain tumor, so this goes back, you know, maybe eighteen years ago in Denver where we lived, and I helped develop a uh, home for the. Children, you know, by children I mean anyone between 10 and 20 that were homeless. And, and uh, I was very successful in, in helping that occur. And that made me feel really good. You know, the thing with any work that I did, I did it very quietly. I did it very, very quietly. You know, I just wasn't looking for 
any recognition. I just did it. I think probably because of my stay in Bolivia. I felt a need to continue doing those kinds of things. And what kind of an impact did all these experiences have on you to help you through this incredible challenge of dealing with a brain tumor? Well, I don't come out and say it, but I think that I'm being, in a way, rewarded for everything that I did. Now I have tears in my eyes because what I have is very serious. I have a malignant brain tumor. And when I went back to the hospital five years ago, they just thought, forget it. But I didn't forget it. I'm doing well, and I'm continuing to do well. So I'm grateful that I had the ability to do what I was able to do. Now physically, I'm not able to do what I used to do. But I think writing this book will be a source of inspiration to other people. That's what I believe. That's why I wrote it. So you've had all kinds of different treatments, I'm sure. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I've been under radiation a couple of times. I've been uh, operated on. And in fact, that's kind of a cute story. I had a wonderful, wonderful love story, and that's in the book as well. But my husband, actually, I'm going to put this in quotations, lied to me. When they first went in to take a look at my brain tumor and to pull some of it out, it was so malignant and so deep that they couldn't take any of it out, except just a sample, you know, to check the malignant, a small sample to check the malignancy. Anyway, my husband said, oh, they removed 25%. And that lie kept me going. That lie kept me going. And then I found out, you know, in, with a recent return, <laughs> that they didn't take it. And I thought, bless his heart, you know, he kept me going. Well, just listening to you, Alice, you would never know that you've been through these incredible tough experiences. You sound so full of life, and I'm sure you are because of all your experiences and all you've done. And, and in spite of the brain tumor, you're determined to live life to its fullness right now, it sounds to me. Oh, yes. I wake up every morning. I look out the window, and I am very, very grateful. Absolutely, I am. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through iUniverse.com. iUniverse.com. And it's also available through Amazon. And also you can get it from me. Do you have a website? Yes. And what is that? My website is Alice, A-L-I-C-E, Snow, S-N-O-W, Killam, K-I-L-L-A-M, at gmail, G-M-A-I-L dot com. Well, very good. We appreciate you sharing a few elements of your life and of this book you uh, we wish you the best and our prayers go with you alice i 
know that you're going to be an inspiration to those around you and especially to those who buy your book. So thank you. Thank you. That was Alice Snow. She is the author of her book, The Miracle of Me, a Memoir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.